are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm very pleased that you could join me if we've never been introduced before. My name is David Guzik. My main work is as a pastor, a Bible teacher, and probably as a Bible commentator is the way that um, I reach most people. I have an online Bible commentary through the entire Bible, verse by verse. It's kind of my life's work, and uh, some people find it helpful. Obviously, there's no Bible commentary that's going to be helpful and useful for every individual person. But I am gratified to know and to hear that my Bible commentary is helpful for at least some people. Anyway, that's mainly what I do, but I do also like to have a YouTube presence. And a lot of the Bible teaching and preaching videos we put out on the YouTube channel. I have a daily devotional that goes out every day. Uh, If you subscribe and click the notifications, you get those things uh, notified every day. And I'm going to be doing that daily devotional, at least, uh, God willing, uh, till the end of the year. Uh, Then I think we may not continue it longer after that. But I also like to come on here on Thursday afternoons and spend some time with you all uh, with a question and answer program. Now, here's some of the problem with the question and answer format here is really since the beginning of this year, we've had a terrible time technically, and we've replaced equipment. I'm very grateful that the people from our internet provider have come out and replaced some cabling just in the last few days. We hope that this addresses things, but we're just going to have to kind of wait and see. And even though it's been discouraging in the past when there's been a lot of buffering, a lot of lagging, uh, no wonder people don't want to hang around and watch anything like that. I, I wouldn't watch anything that had a lot of buffering or lagging in it. I hope that we can get those things uh, behind us and that we can enjoy a good live stream experience together here. So I'm grateful to every one of you who join us. Um, if you can, and especially if we can get our technical act together, we hope that you'll tell other people and join us consistently here on Thursday afternoons. Again, it's 12 noon West Coast in the United States time. We're very grateful that we have a global audience, and so I have no idea what time it is for you. We begin with a lead question that comes in every week. Um, It'll come in through social media, through email, through a leftover question. And what I want to do today is after dealing with the lead question, I want to go through very quickly the questions that came in last week that I wasn't able to get to because we had so many technical problems and hopefully go through those questions pretty quickly. But today I want to lead with something from Patty. And I think Patty contacted us via Facebook. Patty asks this, could you tell me if David ever did a sermon on Genesis 18? I find this absolutely incredible that God came down as a man. Also, is there anywhere else this happened? Also, could it happen again? It's an incredible story, and if not in the Bible, I never would have believed it. Thank you in advance. Well, Patty, thank you for your question, and uh, I agree with you. It's a remarkable thing. We have several instances in the Old Testament where God appears in some kind of human form. Now, sometimes this being, this appearance of God, 
is described as a man, such as in Genesis chapter 18, when it says that the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham at the terebinth trees of Mamre, appearing as one of the three men to visit Abraham. Two of those men, so to speak, went on to Sodom and Gomorrah and were revealed to be angels, angelic beings. The third man, uh, again, someone appearing as a man, was actually Yahweh, the Lord himself. Now, we see this repeated, even emphasized in the passage that Patty referred to, Genesis chapter 18. So, let's just take a look at some of those verses together. Genesis chapter 18, I'm going to start with the first couple of verses. Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Okay, that's the simple, straightforward record there of the first two verses of Genesis chapter 18. I want you to notice, first of all, that it describes these three beings there who visited Abraham. It said three men were standing by him. They appeared suddenly. In other words, it's not like as if he saw him coming from a long distance, but suddenly there appeared before him three men. And that's simply how it describes them. But I want you to notice something back at the very beginning of the verse, if I could call your attention to it. It says, then the Lord appeared to him. So there's something of an appearance of Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel here in this appearance of the three men before Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Then if you were to take a look at verse 13 of that passage, it would say, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Now, notice this, verse 13 says that it was the Lord, it was Yahweh speaking to Abraham. Then in verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Again, it's the Lord conversing with Abraham, just just as one person might converse with another person, it's God appearing in some kind of human form. Again, I just want to give you a note of emphasis. I'm not even going to give you every place where this is described, but if you were to take a look next at verse 20, it says, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is very great, and because their sin is very grave, again, emphasizing that it was the Lord speaking to Abraham. And if we needed one more reference, even though there's a few more beyond this, Genesis chapter 18, verse 22 says, then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. Abraham still stood before the Lord. So it's very clear that this being who met Abraham, who stood with Abraham and spoke with Abraham, was the Lord, God, Yahweh himself. Now, other times in the Old Testament, This being is not described as a man. That's how he's described in Genesis chapter 18. But he's described as the angel of the Lord. Don't get hung up. Not every time that the Bible uses that word angel does it refer to a person that we would consider to be an angelic being. The title or word angel simply means messenger. 
And sometimes uh, a human being is God's messenger. A human being can be referred to as an angel. Sometimes an angelic being is a messenger. That's what we would normally consider to be an angel. And sometimes the Lord is his own messenger. So sometimes this being that appears before people in the Old Testament as God is described as the angel of the Lord. For example, in Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar and rescued her. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 10, the angel of the Lord speaks as the Lord himself, showing that this was an appearance of God, yet in some kind of angelic form or human form in some sense. So we can assume that this was God appearing several times in the Old Testament in some kind of human form, at least an apparent human form. Now, understanding the biblical teaching of what we usually call the Trinity, that there's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we usually assume, and I think this is a safe assumption, that this is God in the person of Jesus Christ, appearing to Abraham or to Hagar or to Gideon or to Samson's parents or to Joshua or whoever. It's God appearing in the person of Jesus Christ before his incarnation and birth at Bethlehem. Now, we assume this because this is what it says of God the Father in John chapter chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is the bosom of the Father, has de- he has declared him. So in speaking of God the Father, the scriptures tell us very specifically that no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God the Father. So if no one has seen God the Father, and if the Holy Spirit has a non-bodily form, being a spirit, then it makes total sense that if God were to appear to somebody in some kind of human form, it would be God the Son, Jesus Christ. So, we know that Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem. Several passages teach us that. And so, it's fair to us just to say, why should Jesus not on some isolated but important occasions, appear in some bodily form. Now, I I need to point out that this is not the incarnation in the same sense that Jesus was a baby in Bethlehem. At Bethlehem, Jesus was truly and fully human. Of course, while at the same time being truly and fully God. Here, it's more likely that Jesus took the mere appearance of humanity and did so for specific purposes on each occasion. And so, here are some of the places where we see God appearing in human form in the Old Testament. We see that he did it to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, to Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, to Israel in general in Judges chapter 2, to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, 
to Samson's parents in Judges chapter 13, and I could go on and give you a few more. Now, flowing from this is a good, but I'll admit it's an unanswerable question. What did Jesus look like in these pre-incarnate visitations? Did Jesus look like he would later appear as an adult man, as recorded by the Gospels? Did he always have that same appearance? These are excellent questions to ask. We don't really know. We can't really say. Maybe in whatever Jesus looked like, and again, we have a conception in our mind of what Jesus looked like. Um, I thought I had a icon or something like that, of iconic description of Jesus behind me, but we, we, we have this um, conception of what it is that Jesus looked like. Maybe he looked like that, maybe he didn't. But whatever he looked like when he walked this earth during his 33 years um, on this earth as the incarnate son of God, did he look the same when he appeared to Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre? Did he look the same when he appeared to Hagar as the angel of the Lord? Did he look the same? And the answer is we just can't say. It's an interesting thought, but we don't know. Now, Charles Spurgeon speculated what these pre-incarnate appearances look like. And I wish I would have put this quote on the screen for you. I, sorry, I just didn't do it. But um, here's, here's this quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. He says this, um, he appeared not in such a body as God prepared for him when he took upon himself the form of a servant, but in such a form and fashion as seemed most congruous to his divine majesty, and to the circumstances of those he visited, this angel of the divine covenant whom we delight in came and spoke unto this people. Spurgeon's basically saying, we don't know what he looked like, uh, but whatever it was, it was fitting. And I think we could totally agree with that. Now, one other thing from Patty. Patty not only asked, hey, what about these amazing occurrences where it seems like God appeared with people face to face in the Old Testament? Patty also asked this question, could this happen again? Look, I, I would simply say this. We should not expect this or look. Jesus Christ is God's perfect and final revelation of himself. And Jesus ascended to heaven. Friends, that's very important to understand and to emphasize that Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, if someone were to tell me, hey, uh, God appeared to me in human form, I would be very cautious and very suspicious of that claim. The ascension of Jesus communicates to us this idea that God has finished revealing himself in this way. Now, there's many other ways that God reveals himself. In the way of appearing as a physical personage on this earth, God has finished revealing himself in this way. And we can surmise this because Jesus ascended to heaven. All right. Well, thank you, Patty, for your question. I just want to mention a few things before uh, we go on. Look, uh, the, the ministry of my Bible commentary is something called Enduring Word. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. But that, that's sort of the, the ministry that presents the Bible commentary in a lot of different platforms. Uh, 
And uh, once again this summer, a very kind foundation has given us a matching grant, very generous matching grant. And so that means up to the amount of that grant, any contribution to Enduring Word, I'm speaking to you now on June 23rd, 2022, uh, this went active not quite a week ago, last Friday, that any contribution to that, um, to Enduring Word for the matching funds grant will be doubled by this foundation. So, look, you you know me. I, I'm not coming on here week after week and asking for donations, but a couple times a year, we just simply ask people, hey, this would be a great time. And, and I want you to know that your donations are mostly spent on the work of translation. We spend more than anything else on the work of translating my commentary into other languages where good Bible resources, free Bible resources are especially needful. So if God moves your heart, go to EnduringWord.com, go to our app, and you can make a contribution that way. All right, enough with that. I I do just want to say, before I go on to just clicking off some quick answers to questions from last week, I have no idea what this is. Or, well, I know what it is, but I don't know where... I'm thinking that my wife, Ingalil, probably set that up and probably set it up without telling me because I probably would have said, ah, don't bother with it. But it looks nice, doesn't it? And so, uh, yeah, thank you probably to Ingalil. I can't think of who else would have snuck into my office here and put something like that up. Okay, going to quickly click through some questions from last week. Again, I... I think maybe a short answer is better than no answer to these questions. So I want to get to these. Okay. From last week, Kike says, Pastor Guzik, I received my book by your father-in-law on fasting and prayer. Everyone should own a copy. It's amazing. Hey, I've mentioned it before here on a Thursday. My father-in-law, Nils Erik Bergström, uh, who lives in Sweden, has written a good book on fasting and prayer. Uh, he titled it Dedication uh, Through Fasting Prayer. You can get it on Amazon. So just look up the title, look up the author, Nils Eric Bergstrom. Maybe we'll even put a uh, a uh, link into the description. But um, anyway, it's a good book. So thank you, Kike, for uh, mentioning that. Uh, next question comes from Christopher. He says this, I suspect, I know what you'll say, for why Jesus's risen body was scarred, Do you think our resurrection bodies will be wounded also? Christopher, I would just say we have no reason to think that. The stress in the book of Revelation where it describes our new bodies and such really seems to stress the idea of all things being new, all things being restored. So we really don't have any reason to suspect that our resurrection bodies will be scarred in any way or or contain wounds from our life on earth. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Christopher. Next question comes from Chris. By the way, I know I'm clicking through these questions quickly. If you get a little confused on exactly what the question is, we'll have the questions written in the details. Uh, Chris asks this question. I live in Hong Kong. Ezekiel chapter 38 speaks about Gog, who comes from the north of Israel. In Daniel 11, it mentions the king of the north. Are these people the same person? Chris, no. 
the king of the north, as described in Daniel chapter 11, really refers to a very specific political and military situation happening between the time of Daniel and the birth of Jesus. The Ezekiel 38 reference talking about Gog coming from the north, it's really not the same personage at all as the king of the north, uh, which would actually be the Seleucid dynasty in the history of the Greek empire following the death of Alexander the Great. Um, We're not dealing with different groups at all. The only thing they have in common is that they're north of Israel. Uh, The kings of the north mentioned in Daniel chapter 11 would be the kings of those Seleucid dynasties immediately to the north of Israel. If you were to draw a line on the map going north of Israel, you would see that Gog, Magog, that is considerably north of Israel. Thank you for that question, Chris. Mallory asks, are there any sins that are unforgivable according to scripture? Mallory, yes. The unforgivable sin is the sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is and what he did to rescue us. The Bible calls this, Jesus called this, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And for someone to be hardened and permanent in their rejection of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do to rescue us, that is someone who is uh, hardened in the rejection of the Holy Spirit, rejection of Jesus, and that's unforgivable. If a person comes to Jesus and surrenders their life to him and repents and believes, any sin can be forgiven. That's the great news of the gospel. Okay, next question um, also comes from Mallory. Mallory asks, if our bodies are a temple, does this apply to tattoos, piercings, makeup, etc.? Um, well, certainly in this respect, Mallory, I don't think that the scriptures absolutely prohibit tattoos. The one reference to tattoos in the book of Leviticus speaks of uh, tattoos for the dead and seems to refer to Canaanite pagan practices done uh, for the dead. And so I, I would I would say, no, don't do that. Don't imitate Canaanite uh, burial customs. Um, but there is no hard and fast command against tattoos in general, at least in my perspective. There's people who disagree with that, and I understand that. Or piercings and, and makeup. But since our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and I'm speaking of believers, we, we should prayerfully consider such things. Look, we, we need to be able to zealously give the Holy Spirit lordship over everything in our life. And, and if the Holy Spirit were to give liberty to somebody else to get a tattoo or a piercing or to wear certain kinds of makeup or whatever, but not give you liberty to do it. In other words, the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart and say, child, I don't want you to do this. Then you need to listen to the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think that it's common for Christians today to just go with the flow and to not carefully consider, to not carefully ask, what would the Holy Spirit have me to do in this situation? Next question comes from Simon. Simon asks, 
what do you say about dating or marrying someone who's not a Christian? I guess it is perhaps more advantageous to godly living to date or marry someone who is also a Christian. Well, Simon, yes, it is. Look, I do believe that the Bible says that believers, disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, should not marry, and I would say therefore should not date, those who are not believers or disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. It's not because it's impossible to have a good marriage with an unbeliever. And that's not the reason why. It's, it's possible. It's not because there's something so inherently unclean in that person. No, that's not it at all. Um, the, the idea is simply this. If you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Jesus, then the most important thing in your life is honoring and serving Jesus Christ. Oh, your family is important to you. Your career might be important to you. Uh, You know, your physical health might be important to you. There's many things that could be important to you. But supreme above all of that is following and honoring Jesus Christ. Now, if you have one person for whom that's true, and another person who doesn't honor or glorify Jesus Christ at all in their life, th- there's a fundamental mismatch there. And sometimes the bad effect of that mismatch does not appear immediately, but only later. So, Simon, that, that is the fundamental reason why I, I would say that it's not wise for a believer, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ to marry or to date someone who is not one. Uh, Olomu asks this question, in what proportion would you allow allocate church budget between building, welfare, utilities, and salaries? Well, Olomu, there's no, you know, Bible answer to that other than just the responsibility to be a good steward and to manage money wisely. Um, I, I would say that oftentimes we see a church budget made up of uh, one-third for facilities, one-third for ministries, and one-third for salaries. Um, I think those proportions are okay. Obviously, the less you can spend on facilities— the less you can spend on salaries, the more you have for ministries and uh, including just generosity, welfare, missions, evangelism, all the rest of it. But I think in general, that's a pretty good rule. Uh, A third to facilities, which I would include building and utilities in that. A third for facilities, a third for ministries, and a third for salaries. Um, Again, that's not a law, but it's a good principle by which to judge things by. Now, I I do also want to say that in different places in the world, different cultures, economics can work very differently. I'm answering that question from my experience as a pastor here in the United States. Uh, Different cultures, different places, those proportions, I suppose, could be different. And Olomu asks a second question. Why do you explain that 14-year-old Ishmael was described like a baby in Genesis chapter 21, verse 15? Um, Oloma, I looked that passage up, and I have to say that I don't exactly get your question here. He is, in Genesis chapter 21, described as a lad and a boy, 
but I'm not aware of him being described as a baby. Um, so I, I'm just not catching that question, but I do think you're right. He was a approximately 14-year-old young man at that time. Uh, next question comes from Tim, who asks, is faith and belief, are, are faith and belief synonymous or is faith a knowledge claim? And what are some of the things you would present to an atheist when discussing this? Um, I would say that faith, biblically speaking, faith and belief are synonymous. Uh, the New Testament vocabulary given to us to express faith and belief can translate either way. So that I can see that it could just really be more synonymous. The, the big thing that I would emphasize with an atheist in discussing faith and belief is that we have reasons to believe. Sometimes Christians, and this has been true in philosophical Christianity, um, sometimes Christians really want to emphasize the idea that faith is a blind leap into the unknown. Now, I, I agree that there is a step of faith involved for sure, but I don't look at it as a blind leap because God has given us many reasons to trust us and to believe in him. Mallory asks, uh, when considering morning sin is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, how should we approach this without completely pushing others away from Christ and the message? Ma Mallory, I think that um, really what you're getting at here is how just how important it is for us to be honest in our question, in our speaking. I don't think that a Christian mourning, being sorry over, repenting from sin, I don't think that that would push away a believer or a, a unbeliever um, if they just explain it right. Hey, God's really speaking to me about my sin and I'm really grieved about it. Now, if a person stays in that place for an extended period of time, of course, I could see difficulty with that. But just the fact that a person is grieving, that a person is sorry over their sin, if they can explain it correctly, I think that that is something that could be something very helpful for an unbeliever to see. Sam asks this question, did Cain, Abel, and Seth marry? And if so, what were the names of their wives? Well, Sam, yes, they did marry because uh, they had offspring. They were joined together in unions with other women. Um, although I, I wouldn't say we know that about Abel. Abel doesn't seem to have had any children, so probably Abel did not marry. But Cain and Seth, yes, we have no idea what the names of their wives were, other than they were their sisters. <laughs> At the very beginning of the human race, um, people would simply marry their sister. That's how it was. And there was enough purity, if we could say, in the genetic pool, to use an expression, that this resulted no ill effect. Okay, finally, the final question from last week. Then I'm going to get on to the questions that come here this week. Jesse asks, I would like to know what are some great books to read or resources? Jesse, great books to read or resource. Man, that's a hard question because I love books. I've benefited from so many different books 
um, through the years. So I, I just kind of did a very quick look and I'll show you some good books that I've really appreciated. This book by the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. What a great book. Full Surrender. Matter of fact, we, and when I say we, I mean Enduring Word, we have republished this in an inexpensive paperback version. But I recommend go check it out on Amazon. Get it. Full Surrender by J. Edwin Orr. Wow, what a great book. I think it's available on Kindle version on Amazon as well. Another great book I like to recommend is The Jesus Style by my friend Gail Irwin. This is an older hardback edition signed by Gail. Um, okay, it wasn't signed to me. I don't know who, but it was signed to a man named Bruce. But anyway, I'll take it and it has a signature in it. My good friend, uh, Gail Irwin, this is an amazing book. And I think very needful for the moment. The Jesus style, talking about the nature of Jesus, the servant nature of Jesus and how we should live it out. I strongly recommend to you the resources from my friend, my brother, Gail Irwin. The Jesus Style is top on the list. Other books of his are very helpful. Um, here's a little book that I just saw on my shelf that I, I love this little book. By Searching by Isabel Kuhn. I, I don't know if you can get this same edition with the unbelievably cool cover. Uh, you'd have to go to a used bookstore to get that. But I'm sure this is still in publication somewhere or another. But by searching is the great story of a young woman raised in a Christian home who said, I want to know God for myself. My parents' faith is not good enough. I want to know God for myself. And um, how God revealed himself to her uh, by searching. And then finally, why not mention one more time this great book by my father-in-law, Nils Eric Bergstrom, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. You can get it on Amazon. People have lots of questions about fasting, and that book will help you with that. All right. With that, whew, I've cleared away all the questions that came in last week that because of our defective live stream never came in. Uh, so here, I want to just simply say, uh, we'll go on to the questions that have come in this week. Although I do want to make a deliberate welcome to our um, TWR360 audience. Trans World Radio is a tremendous resource. So grateful for them and the work that they do. Um, and we are live on the TWR360 website, accessible through this very same YouTube stream. So very happy about that. I also look down at my um, technical stuff here, and it seems that the live stream is going out well. Maybe our technical problems are solved, but you know, I don't want to be too optimistic. We had one good week before we had a very bad week last week, so I'm more interested in seeing how things are over the long haul. Let me get to the questions that have come in, sent to me from Devin, our moderator. The first question, uh, question comes from Christian who asks, is it a sin and or dishonoring to God if one lies to protect a life? Okay, I'm going to repeat that question just so everybody gets it loud and clear. Christian is asking, is it a sin or is it dishonoring to God if someone lies to protect a life? And uh, Christian, I'm just going to give you the very straight forward, 
upfront answer to that and say, no, it is not dishonoring to God. It is not a sin if somebody lies to protect a life. So, um, in the early days of Christianity, when Christians were being persecuted uh, mercilessly, and if uh, Roman soldiers came to a household and demanded to know where the Christians were hiding, I don't think that somebody would be obligated to tell the Roman soldiers the truth. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.